All right. Once you met someone, you can take a seat. That was such a, a sweet time of worship. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to the exchange. Uh, if you are new, I just want to say hi. My name is Josiah. I would love to meet you after. I'm so glad you guys are here. Do me a favor. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you one so you can follow along. You're like, there's a page number. That's for the Bibles we're passing out. Uh, that is not for all Bibles. But Hebrews chapter 1. Um, I have one announcement while we're passing out some Bibles. Uh, this is exciting. So there, uh, I was talking to Jocelyn. She's our kids director. She is getting married this weekend. Uh, yeah, very exciting. To a guy named Dylan, who's a good friend and uh, who serves with the youth, serves with the kids, who leads the group. Um, honestly, it's such a beautiful couple. And I was talking with her, and I, I think here's, here's the announcement. One thing we as a church could bless them with and her with as our kids director uh, is if you would be willing to sign up in kids ministry. Um, we need about eight volunteers uh, to serve in kids. We are really looking for this number. Um, this is babies, toddlers, little kids, bigger little kids. Um, and if you would like to serve and be a part, that would be incredible. I know that I'd be like, this is the best gift ever. Um, but that really would be awesome. And, and honestly, let me just give it up to our, our e-kids team. They do such a great job week after week. They serve our kids, my kids, your kids. Um, and it's incredible. They, I know they pray over them, they love on them, they serve them, they disciple them, they point them to Jesus. So thankful for that team. And if you're like, how are you going to get eight people? I don't know. I'm looking at you guys going, how are we going to get eight people? So if you could, that would be incredible. Uh, we are in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. I am so excited for this. Today, we are starting the book of Hebrews. And there's like so much to say. I'm just like, I'm overwhelmed. Like, where do I begin? Um, I'm so excited to start this book. We're going to get into it in just a second. Let me just kind of give you a small overview, then we'll have a bigger overview. Uh, the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish believers, believers who are Jews, who came out of Judaism. They believe Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. The, we call that the Old Testament or Old Covenant. And they go, the Messiah has come and it's found in Jesus. Now Hebrews is written because there's a temptation for them to go back to Judaism, go back to the law, go back to the ceremonies, go back to the temple, and we'll see why. And the author is writing this book to simply say, look at Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Jesus is far better. You might think that you, you know he's the Messiah. You believe that, you know that, but he's even better than that. I think we might have a high view of Jesus, and the author is saying you can have a higher view of Jesus. I love this book because it just places a huge emphasis on the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus. My prayer is that as we go through the book of Hebrews for probably the next year of 2020, as we walk through this book, that one, we'd appreciate our heritage, our roots. We would see, man, Jesus, I never saw these 66 books all tied together. I never saw how you're greater than the law and the prophets and Moses and Aaron and the priesthood. I never saw that. And so I hope that there's almost an appreciation and an understanding of this book. And my hope is that we as a church community would say, yes, we too are going to fix our eyes on Jesus. By faith, by faith, by faith, they look to Jesus. So they looked ahead, we look back. And so I'm so excited to go through this book. And I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So I want to kind of share that briefly with you. We don't know who the author is. We're not sure who wrote Hebrews. There's a lot of debate around this. Who wrote this book of Hebrews? Some say a guy named Apollos did. You might know Apollos. Paul, Apollos was an eloquent speaker and leader. And so people think this is so well written. Apollos must have written it, maybe. 
Some think a guy named Barnabas wrote it because he possibly came out of the Levitical priesthood. He could have wrote it, maybe. Um, a lot of people think Paul wrote it uh, because there's a lot of Pauline type of themes, but others say, no, it can't be Paul because it's a different type of Greek, the way he wrote this. And I, I personally think it's Paul because I think Paul is a genius, and to the Jew he's a Jew, and to the Greek he's a Greek, and I just, it doesn't really matter who wrote it. I think at the end of the day, God's saying, I wrote this. This is my book. This is inspired by me. This is going to change your life, change your view of Jesus. Church, my, my hope, my prayer is that as we walk through this, that we'd fall more in love with Jesus, more in love with his word, more in love with this old covenant and the promise of the new covenant that Jesus offered and brings us, and that we really understand, we, we look at the Bible as a whole and go, oh my gosh, these are not 66 individual isolated books, but it's one grand story pointing to the person of Jesus. And that's what Hebrews will do for us this year. So I'm so excited. I want to read. We're going to study three whole verses, all right? Uh, three whole verses today. I actually even thought about making it seven weeks in these three whole verses, but I changed my mind. So don't worry. Let's just, let's just begin. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read it, then we'll pray. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had, when Jesus had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We're going to pray, and we're going to look at this more in depth. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for... Um, giving us your son Jesus. We thank you for sending us the prophets of old that you spoke in many ways and in many times, but Jesus just has spoken through you. Lord, I ask that you'd just be so present, that you would lead and guide our church. Let this not just be a book we walk through to get information, but Jesus, we ask that our heart would be turned towards you in the process, that there'd be an appreciation and love for you and understanding of your word, God. God, I know this book was life-changing for me many years ago, that it made me appreciate our roots, our heritage, and, and I asked Jesus, you just do that again. I asked Jesus that our eyes would be fixed on you, that Jesus, you are greater, you are far better. And we thank you so much for this time uh, that we get to study your word in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. I was at a conference years ago, and there was a person introducing the guest speaker. And the speaker was about to come up, and the guy who's introducing the speaker was just kind of giving like a very flattering introduction. And I don't know if you ever, you see that, you know, you're, you're supposed to like introduce the speaker in a nice way, and, but it was kind of like too flattering. It's a little too nice. The things he was saying was kind of uncomfortable. Like, you're like, wow, that guy, is that in an introduction or what is, you know, it's just a little bit too flattering. And so the guy gets up there and he goes, wow. And the speaker gets up. He goes, wow, that was the second most flattering introduction I've ever received. The first most was the time I had to introduce myself. And I thought that was a great way to transition the uncomfortableness of just that introduction to who this guy was. Uh, I had a speaking engagement a couple years ago where a guy I didn't know very well got on stage and he, he started just like kind of hyping me up and talking about our great friendship. And I've talked to him like three times. I didn't really know him very well. And he's like telling stories. I'm like, that's kind of partially true. And like I got up there and it just made me feel so uncomfortable. Like, <laughs> you know, it's very hard when you have an, a weird strange introduction. Uh, Hebrews is kind of a strange introduction. It's very different. This just gets straight to the point. Look how it begins. He goes, God. That is a great way to begin. God, who at various times in various ways. This is a unique introduction. He gets to the point. He's not exaggerating. If you read this, you go, wow, he's really speaking highly of Jesus. Basically, the author is saying this, um, you can't speak highly enough of Jesus. I can't exaggerate to you 
who Jesus is. I can't exaggerate to you his greatness. I mean, there are seven statements in the verses we read about Jesus, and these are audacious statements about the person. And he's not just blowing smoke. He's not being nice. He's not doing what a lot of introductions do when you try to introduce someone. I mean, he's going, I cannot speak highly enough of Jesus. And here's why I'm saying all this. Here's how we're going to approach Hebrews today and, and really for the rest of our time in Hebrews. Um, here's the author's main point. He's saying Jesus is far better. Your view of Jesus, whatever it is you have of him, maybe you've been walking with Jesus for years and years, Jesus is far better than you think he is. Even if you have a high, like, well, I have the highest view of Jesus, he's far better than that. So he's saying Jesus is far better than you think he is, and we'll walk through the text. Uh, number two, we're going to look at today this thought. Jesus is far better. Jesus is God's final revelation to man. And number three, Jesus is preeminent. He's over it all. So as we walk through these three verses, as we approach this book, he's saying Jesus is far better. He's far better than everything, the law, the ceremonies. Jesus he is God's final revelation to man, and Jesus is the preeminent one. He's the one elevated above all. Ready to go through this? I'm ready to go through this. Let's look at the intro to this. Jesus is far better. You're going to see three words repeated a lot in Hebrews. You're going to see the word better, greater, and eternal, or better, perfect, and eternal. And here's the idea. Thirteen times the author's like Jesus. He's talking about how he's better. The covenant, the new covenant we have is better. It's better. It's better. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. Better than the law. Better than the prophet. He's constantly kind of reiterating this theme of Jesus is better. And then he uses this word perfect. The new covenant is perfect. The sacrifice for sins was perfect. That what Jesus offers us is complete. It's perfect. And then he says this word eternal. It's an eternal, perfect covenant. It goes on. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you can see this word of eternal or forever, that we have an eternal sacrifice. Here's why I'm, I'm beginning this way. Uh, the author of Hebrews is trying to make the point, Jesus is better than you think he is. The, Jesus, what he offers us is perfect. It's complete. And it's eternal. God's blessings, what he gives us, what he does for us, it's better. It's perfect. It's complete. It's forever. It goes on and on. And the author is beginning the book this way. And I want you to understand, whenever we approach a book, you've got to ask some questions like, who's the author? Who's the audience? What's the agenda? We don't know the author. I said that. So what's the audience and what's the agenda? Who's this written to? Remember, this is written to Jewish believers. So believers, second generation, they didn't know Jesus, see Jesus, walk with Jesus. But the apostles, the disciples are saying, they're telling the story of Jesus, the Messiah, the Mashiach, how he fulfilled scriptures, and they're believing in Jesus, they're following Jesus. And so they've left in a sense, they did not leave Judaism. I want to clarify that. They're fulfilled Jews. They believe the Messiah has come. But keep in mind that they're in a season of extreme persecution. So this is written to a bunch of Jewish believers around the year 60 AD. And the ruler at this time is a guy named Nero. Nero, if you know, was a terribly wicked guy. He, loved, he, cre he created some really unique ways to torture Christians, not just feeding us to the lions, but dipping us in tar, lighting us on fire. He's very creative. He would sew Christians up in dead animal carcasses and then feed them to other animals. He's an evil guy. He, you know, there's history kind of talks about these church or these fires in Rome. He blamed the Christians. So you look at the time when this is written. This is written under extreme persecution. The point of the author is saying, I know you're tempted to go back. You want to go back to the law? Go back to the temple? Go back to ceremonies? Go back to what you're familiar with? Keep in mind, the temple was not destroyed in Israel until 70 A.D., so this is written in 60 AD. What does that mean? It means the temple was still in existence. The temple was still around. That was physical. It was tangible. You think about Judaism as a whole. It's very, I love the, the thought of you can taste things, Passover, you taste things. You can smell things, the incense. It engages all of the senses, sight, taste, smell, like hearing, listening. And then here's Christianity. Now it's by faith. 
It goes from like, it engages all of my senses. And then the author's saying, by faith, by faith, by faith. You walk by faith. You live by faith. You look to Jesus in faith. And so they're leaving these physical, tangible things. And now they're having to walk by faith. They're being persecuted. And there's a temptation. I want to just go back to the law. Being a follower of Jesus is hard. Being a follower of Jesus is difficult in this present moment. And you're thinking, Josiah, how does this relate to me? I'm not Jewish. I don't have a Jewish background. I don't know if I really get this. The idea for us is we've all been saved out of something. We've all once put our trust in something and then into Jesus. And there's a temptation for us many times to go back. I don't know what that could be. But think about the temptation for you. What, that, what could be that desire? I want to go back to this. It's hard to follow Jesus. You know? And so they have this temptation to want to go back to law, to go back to the physical, to the tangible. And the author is saying, no, you cannot go back. So here's what he's doing. The author is trying to so magnify Jesus that they can't turn back. He's like, I want you to see who Jesus is. I want you to know who he is, what he's done. You think highly of Jesus, you don't think highly enough. So he's saying, let me so magnify Jesus that you could never turn back. Let me so speak highly of Jesus, how he's better than the law, better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than everything. It doesn't matter what kind of persecution you're going through, you'll never turn back because Jesus is better. And so really the author's whole point for us is to create this, again, he begins the book this way. By just creating this like, wow, look at Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And it's absolutely incredible. You know, there was a time in Jesus' ministry when there's multitudes following him. And if you remember in John 6, Jesus gave a very controversial sermon and people didn't like it and many left. John 6, 66 says many walked away from Jesus. And if you remember, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said this, we'll put the verse up. Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I want you to hear this. Jesus is like, people are leaving me left and right. Do you also want to go? And I love Peter's question. What a good question. Is where, where else can we go? We've just spent so much time. Jesus, where else can we, there's nowhere else to go. Uh, being with you, watching you, seeing you firsthand up close, I, 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 there's nowhere else we could go, Jesus. And he goes, and you alone have the words of eternal life. And I love this phrase. He goes, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ. And honestly, that's how Christianity works so often. You believe in Jesus, then you come to know. I think people will go, once I know, then I'll believe. And there's a side of scriptures that even 2 Corinthians 3 talks about this. Once you believe, that veil is removed, then you know. There's something about I believe and then I know. He goes, we've come to believe and know. We know. We know you're the Christ. Where else can we go? And see, here's Hebrews. Here, these Jewish Christians under Nero, facing extreme persecution, wanting to go back, want to go back to the law, back to the ceremonies, and he's saying, you can't, Jesus is far better than you think he is. You can't go back. There's, there's nothing, you're, what are you going to go back to? Physical things? He goes, all of those things are a shadow of Jesus. The law, the priesthood, the substances of Christ, those things, the physical things you see are just a shadow. The real, true substances of Jesus. You follow me, church? So why are, we, why are we choosing this book even for us as our church? And we're saying, what the year of 2020, we want vision. We want a vision of Jesus. We want to know Jesus. We want to see Jesus. We want to elevate the person of Jesus. You know, you go, isn't that what you do every week? Yeah, but we can't, I don't think I can emphasize him and his work and who he is and what he's done enough. So we're saying, listen, you might want to go back to something. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. You're going back to the shadow. The substance is of Jesus. Amen. So here's kind of the, the we're going to walk through this, Hebrews, as you see the books, this is kind of that intro. Uh, you're going to see the author speak of exhortation, examination, expectation, exaltation. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, the author is going to exhort these guys a lot. Uh, actually, there's five different warnings in Hebrews. 
And those are the passages that you're going to be like, how is Josiah going to teach this one? Um, they're pretty difficult passages when we get to Hebrews 6 and 10, and you're going to be sweating a little bit. Um, but they're good, and they're difficult passages. You're going to see a lot of uh, examination. He's going to talk to them, like, look, look, and examine your faith. Where are you at? What do you, do you really believe? Are you really all in? Are you just around this because family or friends are? I mean, are you really all in when it comes to following Jesus? It's going to create this examination process. Uh, you're going to see this expectation the whole point of Hebrews 11, that great chapter on the hall of faith, he's saying, listen, Abraham can live by faith because he was looking for an eternal city. Moses could leave Egypt because he knew there's an eternal kingdom. And there's almost this expectation of look for the eternal kingdom that is to come. Uh, and then we're going to see that exaltation, just who Jesus is. Uh, this book presents Jesus in so many unique ways. Again, if you do not have a good understanding or grasp of the Old Testament, I hope by the time, if you walk through this whole book with us, you will tie in some verses and chapters and books of the Bible. You go, oh my gosh, I never saw Exodus and Leviticus books. I avoided my whole life how beautiful they are and how they speak of Jesus. And that's what he does in this. He's exalting the person of Jesus. What we're going to see in our text today is the author present Jesus as that prophet, priest, and king. You're going to see this theme a lot in Hebrews, that Jesus fulfills three offices of the Old Testament. Jesus is the prophet of prophets. He's that last eternal priest, and he's the king of kings. You're going to see the author speak of this, even in these three verses, if you didn't catch it. Here's what I mean. The prophet. What does a prophet do? A prophet represents God to man. Just think about that. What does a prophet do when you read about it in the Bible? A prophet is, let me speak on behalf of God to man. A prophet represents God to man. What does a priest do? A priest represents man to God. So on behalf of man and the sins of man, the priest would go and atone for their sins. Jesus is that final, perfect priest, the high priest. And there's going to be the king. He's going to rule over it all. He's going to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so Jesus fulfills these offices. So I'm bringing this up so you get that big picture, what's going on here. So you ready? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Let's look at the second point. Jesus is God's final revelation. Jesus is God's final revelation. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read it again. Look down with me. Read it with me. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Just keep in mind, God speaks. We serve a God who speaks. God is not in heaven and he's silent. People might go, where's God? Why don't I hear God? The, the author is saying from the very beginning, God has spoken. God is speaking through the person of Jesus and the revelation of Jesus. We serve a God who speaks. I do wonder, maybe kind of just stop when I read this and go, what would the world be like if God didn't speak? What would it be like if God never chose to reveal himself to man? I shared this around Christmas time, but there's an article between C.S. Lewis responding to the atheist astronaut who said, I went into space, then I, I was in outer space, and there was no God. And, and C.S. Lewis wrote a brilliant argument for how no man could ever find God. And if God wanted to make himself known, he would have to do that. He'd have to make himself known. No one's ever going to search high or search low and be like, there's God. God would have to choose to reveal himself to us. One author said it this way. Uh, he says, God is pictured not as a silent and distant force, impassively regulating the universe, but as a talker, as one who has been speaking, arguing, pleading, wooing, commanding, telling stories, conversing, and generally spinning words across the lines between heaven and earth since the beginning of time. We serve a God who speaks and woos and tells stories and draws in and gives us direction. We serve a God who speaks. Amen. God speaks. Now, let me just, I want to kind of give you some terms, and I want you to, like, take notes or just keep this in mind. Um, there are four ways the Bible kind of describes that God speaks. There are two revelations of people who study these things. They talk about, here's the four ways God has spoken, and really, here's the two revelations. All right, you ready? 
So there's the general, general revelation of God and the special revelation of God. The general revelation of God is that general kind of sense. That's why the word says general. It's like God speaks how? Through nature, through our conscience, uh, that special or specific revelation. God speaks, has spoken through prophets. God has spoken to us really ultimately, finally, through his son. So let's just walk through this. General revelation, special revelation. For those of you who are like, theology 101, I want this. Okay, this is for you. All right, so general revelation. Here's the idea. Uh, Nature and conscience. Psalm 19, right? Psalm 19. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Listen, day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. The author's saying is, even when you just look at creation, it says something about God. Even when you look at the heavens, even when you look at the earth, it communicates something about God, the majesty of God, the power of God, those immutable attributes, as as Paul would say in Romans 1. Here's what Paul says when he talks about that general nature revelation. He says, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That's us. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. The idea of general revelation is God speaks to us through creation. Now, it's not specific. You can't look at a mountain or waterfall and be like, Jesus must have died on the cross for my sins. No, that's why we need special revelation. But there's still something about God's earth and God's creation saying that speaks of God's power and might. And that is in a general sense. Not even just through nature, but through our conscience. I love that Romans 2 says this. Here's Romans 2 verse 15. It says, uh, the work, listen, the work of the law is written in their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. He said, God has written the law in the hearts of men. People have this sense of morality and they deny it and they want to make it into their own worldview. We try to make God in our image. That's what we try to do. They're denying the way that God has made them. And so he's like, you're without excuse in that way. Here's another verse, John 16, 8. In John 16, 8, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin. Of sin because they don't believe in me, Jesus said. Here's what I believe. I believe right now, in a general sense, God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. He's convicting of sin. What's the sin? Not like you need to stop doing these things as much as you need Jesus. You know you need, you know there's one you're made for. You know there's, there's this unquenchable thirst in your life that will never be satisfied with physical things. They'll never be satisfied by a relationship, by a person, by a drink. There's this eternal void in your life that can only be filled by an eternal person. That's the person of Jesus. And I believe the Holy Spirit's convicting the world of sin. Of sin what? The sin is they don't believe in Jesus. My goal is not to be like, stop doing these things. My goal is to say, do you know Jesus? My goal is to go, come alongside the Holy Spirit and be like, I know you know you're made for more. I know you know there's an eternal void in your life. I know that you need the person of Jesus. I know that's the only one who will satisfy you and meet your needs. Here's again what the Bible says. Romans 2, Romans 1, he goes, you're without excuse. If someone at the end of the day says, but I never was told this, fill in the blank. According to this, it's saying you're without, there, there's something within you that says, I need to explore this. If you're honest with truth and you care about truth and people like to say, I care about truth, then you'll explore it out. Why are we here? What's the purpose? To just lightning strike gases and give enough time? We have human consciousness. Is that really it? Like we know there's something more. You're without excuse. And that's the general revelation of God. Now the special revelation of God is just how God speaks specifically through the prophets, through the scriptures, God's word. Hebrews 1 says, finally, through the person of Jesus. So here's the idea for us. When you look at the Bible, Genesis through Malachi, the Old Testament, and you read through that, 
Really, these prophets or these, and these stories are all pointing to the person of Jesus. There's a king. Remember the whole idea of Chronicles and First and Second Kings? It's like, why is no king good? Why is there no king that satisfies? Well, there's a king that will satisfy. The prophets, you go, why does the message seem in part, like partial? It doesn't seem complete. First Peter talks about this, how the Messiah would suffer but also be glorified. And, and it's confusing. Even to this day, I, I believe for Jews going, the Messiah is spoken of suffering, but he's also spo- spoken of peace and reigning from sea to sea. How do you be both? Uh, Peter talks about that. They didn't see the difference of the first and second coming of Jesus. Here's the verse at 2 Peter 1.21. It says, For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So it's that special relation where God's Spirit is speaking, where God's saying, I'm going to speak to this, from this person to my people. I love them. It's a, it's a prophet representing God to man. All right. And then the final thing is just Jesus. Look at Jesus. The final way God speaks, we see here in Hebrews, is saying, look at the person of Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. What did he say? What did he do? How did he live? How did he act? There's that, that special, that specific revelation that comes from Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You know, there's something about, if once you explore the person of Jesus, you go, I know what God's like. See, I, I want to say this. I'm saying all of this because no one has an excuse. When you and I stand before God, you can't be like, God, you've never spoken to me. You've never even tried to speak to me. What's up with that, God? God's like, I endlessly spoke to you. I endlessly sent people to you. Even right now, you're sitting here hearing about Jesus. You are without excuse. I'm without excuse. You cannot say, God did not try to speak to me. God, where were you? And I get that. I get that there's frustration. I get that you've walked through that. And I want to talk about that doubt in a second. And I get that you go, anyone can claim to be a prophet. Anyone can claim to be these things. And I want to address that in a second. But I, the Bible is basically saying you cannot hide behind that, that you are without an excuse in that, that God is speaking. He has spoken. He speaks to the person of Jesus. And Jesus, in his revelation, says he speaks to us to the person of the Holy Spirit. He's still speaking through God's Spirit. Amen. We serve a God who's speaking. And it took, a, this is what Hebrews is saying. God spoke through prophets, but now he's spoken finally through the son Jesus. Do you remember being in elementary school in um, second, first, second, third grade? You like a girl. Maybe the guys did this. I don't know if the girls did this. Maybe the girls did this. But you'd write a note. You'd be like, do you like me? Yes, no, maybe. And then you're like, okay, ch- you know, check a box. And then you give it to a friend. You're like, I can't deliver that message. You deliver that message. You're like, ah. Oh. And like, hey, this is not me. I promise. It's for my friend. Do you like, you know. And then you give that note. I remember my buddy, his name was Chandler, in second grade, he gave me a note to give to a girl, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, do you like me? I'm like, who's it for? He's like, Samantha. And I was so mad, because I like Samantha. I'm like, I can't give it to her. I'm like, I can't give it to her. I remember this, like, he's like, no, you got it. I'm like, you got to ask someone else, man. Like, I can't give it to her, and I would not deliver the message. Here's all I'm trying to bring up with that is, God has spoken to us through the prophets, a message. There's something about that. God's like, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, no, maybe. Um, God has spoken to us. And the idea is when Jesus has come, there's, that, there's nothing like the face-to-face. As you grow up and mature, there's something like, I can't go, th- I'm going to go down. Here's the idea, God went down. God's like, let me speak face-to-face. The message became the messenger, which is so crazy. The message of God, words from heaven. People are like, I want to sign in the sky. We have something way better. We have God incarnate. We have God who took on human flesh and dwelt among us. We have something way better than a message in the sky or the prophets of old. He's spoken to us in these last days through his son. God has spoken. That's, it's speaking of finality. I love it. It's like God has spoken. Um, I don't know if you, and I'm sorry to even reference this, but I can't not think of this. If you watch The Mandalorian, and I've never referenced that, such a good series. Anyways, if you're like, what's The Mandalorian? You're missing out. There's a guy named Quill. All right, a little picture of Quill because he's so weird looking. Quill would talk to the Mandalorian, and I love the little dynamic back and forth. He would like say something like, I'm going to go with you. I have spoken. And he'd always just say, I have spoken after everything. And I'm like, oh, I lo-. it was like so biblical. He's like, and you will not do that. I have spoken. And he would just like say it with such authority. Sorry. When I read this phrase, God has spoken. I'm like, yes, this is the finality of that. All right, you get off that picture because it's way distracting. But the finality of God has spoken, like it's final. 
It's authoritative that Jesus, you guys, is the prophet of all prophets. Deuteronomy 18 is a beautiful chapter that talks about Moses, who's the prophet to the Jews, says, there will be a prophet after me that's the prophet of prophets. Who is the prophet of prophets? That's been discussed and kicked around in Judaism. Jesus comes on the scene, and he is the prophet of prophets. Deuteronomy 18, 18, listen to what it says here. It says, I, God speaking, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. He's like, I'm going to send a prophet of prophets. If you don't hear him, it's on you. But he's going to come and, and speak. There's a finality to the person of Jesus. Why is this so important? Because when other religions come on the scene and say, well, there's other prophets that came along after Jesus, and Jesus was just one of the prophets, according to Islam. He's one of the many prophets. He is the last, final prophet of prophets. When Mormonism comes on and says, well, Joseph Smith, you know, had some weird epileptic dreams and visions, and I think Jesus was in South America. There's no evidence for that, but whatever. And this, Jesus is the prophet of prophets. When, when Charles Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, has come on, comes on the scene and says, well, I also have to add to the scriptures because it's been imperfect for the last 1,900 years. Jesus is the final prophet. That's what he's saying. He, he's, the la- he's not just the messenger. He's the message. He, he's the message made flesh and dwelt among us. There's an absolute finality to this. When Jesus is with Peter and James and John on the mountain, and he's transfigured in front of them, and Peter wakes up from his nap, and Jesus is like glowing, and he's like, ah, he's like, we should build three temples, one for you, Moses, and Elijah. And Peter's like, don't talk. And, and God literally said from heaven, Peter, he goes, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him, hear him, hear him. Peter, don't talk, hear him, hear him. This is the person you listen to and hear. God has spoken in various times and in various ways throughout the centuries, and I'm thankful for these prophets. I'm thankful for this book, but I'm also thankful for the prophet of prophet. That God did not just send a prophet, but he sent, he says, my son. God has spoken through his son. There's a finality to this. And why is this so important? Because I know that many of you might struggle with this idea that God doesn't speak. And how dare Christians believe, how dare they believe this exclusive message that Jesus is the only way? And here's all I want to submit to you. Just have you looked at the person of Jesus? Have you genuinely looked at the person of Jesus? He made some pretty audacious claims. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He made some big statements, some big claims, and yet you see the way he lives humbly. You see the way that he was the servant of servants. He didn't come and live in a palace and take his authority and be like, sir, he came to serve others. Jesus even said, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve. Here's a guy who could have used all the authority that people are giving him and wanting him to take over the kingdom of Rome. And he's like, no, no, but I, I, I came to die and suffer. I would say, have you looked at the person of Jesus and the humility? And I, I honestly believe that, that this is how Jesus yielded his power, speaks about our God, what he's like. I think we need to spend time looking at Jesus. And also I'd submit to you, like, God doesn't speak. There's no final authority. I'm my own final authority. I want to challenge that a little bit. When you become your own final authority and your emotions change and your beliefs change, and I I believe this today, but in 10 years you might not believe, and you become the final authority, what have you done? You've made yourself God. Man, I I believe this professor over here more than you made that person God. That is the final authority in your life. And I'd say everyone submits to some sort of authority and people for some reason love to make it themselves. And we make really bad gods. We make really bad final authorities. We make really bad. So ultimately, and I get this, it's difficult. The message of the cross, the message of Jesus, the message of following Jesus is difficult. Jesus, come, follow me, die. I get that the message is difficult. Die to yourself, live for me. Take your cross and follow me. I get that it's difficult. But sooner or later, again, if there is a God, He's going to challenge your worldview. He's going to challenge my worldview. If there's a God, does God has a right to say, I know you believe this, but this is what I say. Jesus in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount says, you've heard it say of old, but I say to you. You've heard it said of old, but I say to you. There is that, sooner or later, God's going to contradict me and you and who wins. 
Do I say, well, I don't believe that, so I'm going to go on with my life. I'm glad God doesn't agree with mainline media. I'm glad God doesn't agree with future beliefs. Past. I'm, I'm glad that we have the word of God that is unchanging. And I'm saying that sooner or later, you might be contradicting God. And who, who wins in that? You either submit to it or you say, I'm just going to keep doing my own thing, my own thing. And how's that going? And what's that leading to? You see, God has spoken. I would encourage you, as painful as it is sometimes, to submit to the word of God. It's so freeing. It's difficult sometimes to go, okay, God, you've spoken. This is hard for me to believe. It's hard for me to live out, want to do. But I, Lord, when I believe, I actually submit my life to you. I find true freedom. Through discipline, through that just focus comes freedom. Through focusing on your word and taking it serious comes genuine freedom. God has spoken. There's this final revelation in Jesus. Amen? So, amen? So listen, Jesus is far better. Uh, Jesus is God's final revelation. And let's look at the last thing. Uh, Jesus is preeminence meaning Jesus is above all. Can we read verse two through three? So he says, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, listen, whom, and notice these seven phrases, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is preeminent. The author starts off really intense. Like, it's so intense. When I'm like, it's like in your face. God, who at various times, and he's just like, look at Jesus. Look at these seven descriptions of Jesus. There are seven different descriptions of who Jesus is and what, what he's done and who he is. Now, let me just point this out. It's actually believed that verse two, like the end of verse two or middle of verse two to three, these seven phrases were actually like adopted from a hymn that was passed around their day. So actually, it seems that the way this is written, we wouldn't pick it up in English, but the way this is written with alliteration and kind of some rhymes to it, it seems that this was actually, and most people believe this was a hymn the author's pulling from saying, you know this about Jesus. He is the heir of all things. He is the creator of the world. He is the sustainer. And he's actually like kind of just saying, this is, the, this is something they would sing about Jesus. If you worship leaders want to take that and make it a song, that'd be cool. But this is like the idea. They were like, this was like who Jesus is. And I want to point this out because these seven statements, I, like I said, I've really thought about making this seven different sermons because like, how do you, how do, where do you begin? I was so overwhelmed by reading this. Like, I don't even know how to, how do you just be like, all right, let's look at these seven. Ma- this, according to everyone, this passage in Hebrews 1, Philippians chapter 2, Colossians 1, is really the highest elevated doctrine we have of Jesus. Saying, Jesus, you think highly of him? Do you know that he's the creator of the worlds? He's the sustainer of the world? You think highly of Jesus, but do you really think high enough of Jesus? Do we really get it? Do we really get, when we talk about Jesus, who we're talking about here? So we're just going to walk through these really quick. Some we might spend more time on, less time on, but we'll walk through these at a hopefully decent pace. Let's talk through this. Jesus is the preeminent one. He's above all. Let's look at the first phrase. What's the first phrase in verse 2? It says this, he's the heir. He's the heir. Look at the phrase, whom he has appointed heir of all things whom he has appointed heir of all things. This is strange. How is Jesus, how does he receive an inheritance? We're going to see how he's the creator of it all. How, what does he inherit? What does Jesus even get? It says all things, but what is that? Listen, the Bible makes this clear throughout the New Testament. The inheritance that Jesus got was us. What Jesus received was us. That's not, like, in my mind, I'm like, that's not that great of an inheritance. When you think about all the problems that come with that, but Jesus' inheritance, well, he goes, he's the heir of all things. He receives this. He receives, all, he receives you guys, me. You know, there, there's a parable about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13. And I think that so often it can be misused. I think it probably has a dual meaning, but I, I think there's a primarily one. We'll put the verse up. 
listen to this, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus gave this wonderful sermon in Matthew 13 about what is the kingdom of heaven like? And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. For so long, I'd hear that preached as, man, you find Jesus, you find heaven, sell everything you have, you know, buy it, buy Jesus, get it. But I mean, really, realistically, I cannot purchase the gospel. I, I honestly think a better interpretation of this is, we are the treasure in the field. The field, in another parable, according to Jesus, was the world. And I believe we're the treasure in the field. And Jesus is like, I'll sell everything. I'll buy, I'll buy it. I'll sell everything I have. I'll leave heaven. I'll become a man. I'll sell everything I have to buy, to buy you. I, I think that is a better and truer interpretation of this. It could be a dual thing, but I think this just fits in line with Scripture, that we are in his inheritance. Do you understand something that Jesus goes, I'll, I'll leave heaven to get you? You, your life, your redemption, you being with me for eternity is what I value the most. We were the joy that was set before Jesus. That's why he endured the cross. That Jesus is the heir of all those things. You know, that, do you, I don't know if I, when I talk about Jesus' love for you or me, I still don't fathom it. I don't still, I don't, I can't fathom what he left. I can't fathom what he really went through on the cross. I can't fathom the sin of the world, the sin of Josiah placed on him. And he goes, it's for you. Because I want to be with you. He goes, he's the heir of all things. He goes, you have a high view of Jesus. It's not high enough. The heir of all things. Number two is this, in the same phrase. And he says, he's the creator through whom also he made the world, or worlds. It, it's like the eons, the ages. Through whom Jesus made everything. Through God. G- it's crazy to think this, because you go, in the beginning God created, right? In the beginning God. I thought God's the creator. Absolutely. God is the creator. God the Father is the creator. God the Son is the creator. God the Holy Spirit is the creator. We see the idea that God is involved in creation, that Spirit's involved in creation, Jesus is involved in creation. Write this verse down in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. It says, By Jesus, all things have been created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. All things are created by Jesus and for Jesus. That's a huge claim. Moving on, in John chapter 1, when it starts off, it says, In the beginning was the word, that whole, that whole passage. Here's John 1, 3. John chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Through Jesus all things have been made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Through Jesus, all, I couldn't get more clear. Like, I thought, Jesus is God. He is the creator. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We'll maybe talk about that again in a second. <laughs> but we go, we see the creation. We see the Trinity involved in creation. Yeah, he is the creator. He's like, you might think highly of Jesus, but do you think high enough? Uh, we'll keep going. We'll see that he speaks of him, Jesus, as God's glory. Look at the next phrase. It says, who being the brightness of his glory. Circle that word brightness. Brightness, maybe your translation says the radiance of his glory. That Jesus is radiating the glory of God. You think about the sun that radiates, like the, the sun waves or the beams, sunbeams. It's like Jesus is the radiation of God's glory. Meaning, here's the idea. When Moses stood before God in the book of Exodus, and he was in the presence of God, and he came down the mountain, his face was so bright. People were like, we can't even look at you, Moses. Your face is way too bright. Uh, Moses was reflecting the glory of God. He was just reflecting. Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God. He's radiating the glory of God. It's much different. Jesus is the radiation of God's glory. Uh, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, listen, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld the glory of Jesus. It was full of grace and it was full of truth. Isn't that great that God's glory is full of grace and full of truth? He's like, man, the glory of Jesus was full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. He's the, he's the radiance of God's glory. Paul put it brilliantly in 2 Corinthians 4. Just listen to this verse. Paul says, and please hear this, even if our gospel is veiled, 
it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The enemy has blinded people from seeing Jesus and knowing Jesus. And, and here's, I love Paul's hope, because God, though, is really good at commanding light to shine out of darkness. Pray that God shines light out of darkness into them, that they might see the glory of Jesus. They may look at Jesus. I would say this, just look at Jesus. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. You want, to see the, you want to see what he's full of? Full of grace, full of truth, because it shines on the, per, the person in the face of Jesus. He's the radiance of God's glory. He, you understand, he's God. That's the next phrase. Look at number four. It says he's the exact nature. He says, verse three, he's the express image of his person. Express image of his person. That word express image is this one word. It kind of sounds like character in Greek. We'll put up here. And the idea is like it was a dye. It was a mold. This word was used to speak of coins that would take a Caesar's you know, face and they would stamp it onto soft metal. And it'd be the exact, whatever was on that dye or that mold was exactly stamped onto that, that mold that was happening. And he's saying Jesus is the exact expressed image of God. If you want to know what God's like, again, look at Jesus. He's the exact person. And then this word character speaks of his nature. Not just like this dye, this mold that was stamped on, but it's saying literally God's character is revealed in Jesus. If God walked among us, which he did, it's the person of Jesus, and that's what, you, that's what he looked like. That's what we full of grace and truth. So here's the story. It's Exodus 33. Mentioned it maybe last week. But Exodus 33, Moses is like, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. What a great question. And if you remember God's response to Exodus 33, we'll put the verses up here. Uh, Moses said, please show me your glory. Then God said, I will make my goodness pass before you. Please listen to this. I want to see your glory. What's God's glory? He goes, my goodness. The glory of God is connected to the character of God. That's what I'm trying to say. The glory of God is connected to the character of God. This idea of his exact nature, the glory of God is connected to his character. He's like, you want to see my glory? You're going to see my goodness. I love that the goodness of God is a reflection of his glory. That we see, what is God's glory like? You would just feel the weight of his goodness. If you've ever in a, had alone time or worship time with the Lord, you just feel that sense of like weight, and you go, God, you're way too good. You're way too good. You read about people who had those like kind of encounters with God where they just overwhelmed and brought to tears like mush. They're like, God, you're too good. Like your waves of your love and your goodness is like, I cannot handle it. You're too good. Get it off of me. And it's like described as God's glory, described as God's goodness. God's like, my goodness is going to pass before you. Listen, he is the express image of his person. He, 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 Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. And next we're going to see this. He's the sustainer. Look at the next phrase. He's upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus is not just the creator. He's the sustainer. Uh, guys, we're not deists. We don't believe God created everything. He's like, good luck. You know, you see how creation turns out. Uh, we believe God is actively involved in creation. We don't believe God has created everything. And it's like, it's just going to run the way. He's like, I'm involved. I uphold it by the word of my power. Think about this. God spoke the world into existence. He says, light was. He says, light be, light was. When it says, let there be light, it's literally, light be, and then light was. God spoke the world into existence. And he goes, I uphold and I sustain all things also by the word of my power. So God's word is weighty. God's word is powerful. He's the sustainer. Think about our earth. Think about this little ball that we're on rotating throughout space. You know, we're 93 million miles away from the sun. You think about the surface of the sun is about 10,000 degrees. It's really 27 million degrees at its core. You think about how we're perfectly placed distance-wise. If we're a little bit further, a little bit closer, we'd freeze or we'd burn up. It's unbelievable. You think about the tilt that we're at. 
the 23-degree angle that we have, this idea that, you know, we have different seasons in our life or different seasons in the world, that it creates really, there would be just major ice shifts if we were at a perfect standstill. I mean, you just think about how God created the world, where we're at, and he's like, I sustain it by the word of my power, and here's the whole point of that. If he's like, if I can sustain the world by the, my word, I can sustain you by my word. If I can sustain the whole universe by the word of my power, guess what? I can sustain you. I'm upholding all things. Again, you think highly of Jesus, he's saying not highly enough. Next, he says this, when he had by himself purged our sins. The next phrase is Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the purifier. Jesus is the one, that word purge is cleansed our sins. Church, listen up. Jesus is the prophet who represents God to man, but he's also the priest who represents man to God. He's the one who goes to God and says, Father, I've shed my blood for their forgiveness of sins. They're right with you. They're forgiven. They're clean. They're cleansed. They're mine. We can stand before God because Jesus purged our sins. You can have your sins forgiven through the person of Jesus. Just like at one point they needed lambs, of bull, lambs and bulls and goats to take away their sins, we have Jesus, who's the high priest, who also became the lamb. We have Jesus, who took on the wrath of God for us. He purged our sins. He cleansed our sins. And lastly, here's what it says, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The idea is this priest sat down because the work is finished. This priest now can sit down because he's king and the work is done. So he's that prophet, he's that priest, he's that king. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's the prophet, priest, king. And I love this imagery because understand this, in the, and you'll see this more in Hebrews, but the priest was always busy, always doing work, always offering atonement, always doing something in the temple. There was no chair in the temple. There was never a time for a priest to rest. You wouldn't find one of these in the temple. There's nothing. The idea was there's always work to be done. And then here Jesus is sitting. Why is he sitting? Because the work is done. The work is finished. Jesus can sit down at the right hand because he goes, I'm the priest who can sit. No, no other priest can sit in the temple. No other priest can sit in the presence of God. But I can sit because the work is done. It is finished. Church, our, our sins have been paid for. Jesus is sitting down. He's not in heaven, walking back, back and forth, stressing out, being like, oh my gosh, he's, it's finished. It's done. You know, one of my favorite stories is in Acts 7. We actually see Jesus standing. If you guys remember in Acts 7, there's a guy named Stephen. Stephen preaches the gospel brilliantly. It's a long chapter in the book of Acts. He's preaching this beautiful message of, of the gospel. And at the end, the Jewish leaders are ready to stone him and kill him. And they pick up stones, and as they're stoning him, here's what Stephen says. Listen to this. He says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at, them, uh, gnashed at Stephen with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the, listen, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. You see, Jesus is standing to welcome that person into heaven. You think it would almost be opposite, like right now he's standing and then when someone's coming to heaven, he's sitting like, come on, but he's standing, like I cannot wait to receive you in. See, the work is completed, but Jesus, I, I believe, stands when you see a, a believer pass from this life to the next life. He's like, I'm welcoming you in, come on in. You're mine, welcome home. You see, here's all I'm trying to, I think here's the author saying, really, you have a high view of Jesus, but you know what? It's easy to get distracted and want to go back. You have a high view of Jesus, but it's not high enough. Let me tell you about this Jesus. And next week we're going to see, he's going to say in verse four, he's greater than the angels. And then this brilliant message of how he's greater than the angels. He says, you have a high view of Jesus, but it's not high enough. In the, in the story of the Chronicles of Narnia that C.S. Lewis wrote, Lucy, when she brings like, her family back through the wardrobe and she sees Aslan for the first time, here's what she says to him. She says, Aslan, Aslan, when she comes in, you've grown so much bigger. Maybe you remember this. And he said, no, Lucy, you've grown so much bigger. And the bigger you grow, the bigger I'll seem to you. Here's the idea. 
as you grow in your faith, God only gets bigger and bigger. It's crazy. As you really appreciate the person of Jesus, the longer you walk with him, God does not get smaller. God gets bigger. You realize, I thought I had a high view of Jesus. It, it's, it just grows. It just grows and grows and grows. Listen, I'm not sure how it is you view Jesus. I know people get frustrated by these claims. They're going, this is so exclusive. All religions lead to God. You know, they live in a pluralist society just like we do. They're saying, how dare one religion say they're better or they're exclusively right? Don't you know that always leads to God? And I hear that sentence and I hear that statement. I go, how exclusive is that? So you're saying, all of you are wrong and I have the right view. All of you are wrong. And let me tell you, my view is right. I have a superior view. So what you don't like in other religions, you're also displaying and showing. I don't like that you claim exclusiveness. All of them lead to it. And I have the right view. I see the big picture. You don't see the big picture. And that's just as an arrogant view as the other claim. I think it's more intellectually honest when you can say, you know what? The person of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, he either is fully God or he's not. Either reject him, say I want nothing to do with him, or you say he is Lord, he is God, and you bow. Either you embrace him in every area of your life or you, you completely reject him. You cannot play this middle game with Jesus. Jesus made too many bold and audacious claims for you to be like, you know, I'm kind of in the middle of Jesus. He's a good guy. No, he's not a good guy because he claimed to be God. So he's a liar. He's crazy. Okay, you, he's not a good guy. You either go, oh my gosh, Jesus is completely Lord. Or you, I, it's more respectful to go the completely opposite direction. Jesus even said, I wish you're hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That's the worst place to be in. Jesus said that. He goes, you're either for me or against me. There's no, like, this middle, like, Jesus is a pretty good guy compared to other historical figures. He goes, no, you cannot, I cannot be considered a pretty good guy. You're either for me or you're against me. Either you hear the person of Jesus and you say, Jesus, I'm all, because no one led like you. No one did it with humility like you did. No one came to just give their life as a ransom for many like you. They wanted to be elevated. You wanted to be decreased. Jesus, there's no one like you. Who you are, what you've done, how you led, how you redeemed, how you bought us at a price. I'm yours. I'm yours. Take all of me. That's why we're going through Hebrews. We have a high view of Jesus. Our hope as a church is to say, man, Jesus, but I think it can always grow. It's not high enough. Let us look to Jesus throughout this time. Amen? If you don't know Jesus and you want to receive Jesus, you can do that. It is simple as literally calling upon the name of Jesus and saying, Jesus, I believe you are Lord and God. I believe you died on the cross for our sins and you rose again from the grave. And the Bible says in Romans 10, 10, and you will be saved. You confess him as Lord. You believe in the resurrection. You're saved. Because God saved us. We can't ever save ourselves. He paid it all. He purchased us. We're the treasure in the field. Do you receive that? Do you believe that? They asked Jesus one day, Jesus, what are the works we must do to be right with God? And he says, here's the work you must do. Believe in me whom the Father has sent. Jesus, what are some things we can do to be right with God? And he's like, you can't do anything. Just believe in me and whom the Father has sent. That's enough. Just believe in Jesus whom the Father has sent. Amen? We're going to end our time by just praying and worshiping and singing and elevating the name of Jesus. And if you'd like prayer during this time, you can come forward. We'll have prayer leaders. Uh, but we just want to spend our time by elevating the person of Jesus. Can we do that, church? Let's pray and let's just close our time in worship. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the fact that you gave your one and only son, who's the heir of all things, who's the creator, who's the sustainer, who's the king, who's the high priest, who literally meets every need of our life. God, we were made by you and for you. And Lord, I really believe we're on this endless hunt and search until we rest in that truth that we were made by you and for you. We want to rest in you now. We want to look to you now that these eternal voids in our life are only fulfilled by you, God, the one who is eternal. We love you. We thank you. We invite you here in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's just close our time. Would you guys stand with me and let's just end our time with some worship.